Hello, Allison. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just waiting for Julia to connect, which should be shortly. Oh, good. Um, Can't wait. Yeah. Welcome to A Life in Biography. Thank you. What a pleasure. Well, thanks very much. I've been looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about your book, Listen World. And I have to tell you, the world is listening. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was such a fun, fun book to write with Julia. We are so pleased to be on with you. Yeah, that's great. Well, I still don't see her name on my screen yet. Uh, why don't we start, though, by you just telling us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll do the same for Julia, too, of course. Sure. Well, I am a New Yorker. That is uh, where I was born. It's where I live. And I have been a working journalist and writer for my entire career. I started in television news and I slowly pivoted over time to writing for print and writing books. Ah, very good. And so um, how long have you been working on this biography? Oh my gosh, I can answer that in three different ways. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Julie and I became partners, I would say about three years ago, and that really kicked the project into uh, fast forward mode. Um, but for 11 years, um, I had been toiling away, uh, researching and slowly gathering uh, archival uh, documentation because our book, Listen World, is the first biography of Elsie Robinson. So there was a lot of work to be done and explored. But again, I said I had three answers. And the other answer is that it began 30 years ago when I found a piece of paper that led me on this journey. Ah, and what was on that paper? Well, my mother had uh, just died and my brother and I went back to our childhood home to pack up her belongings. And I had a lot of trouble. I was um, really feeling that crush of losing um, my mom. And I made a task that probably should have taken a few hours, which was packing up her books, take a really long time. I was going through every page wanting to know what she had annotated. I was you know, nearly shaking every single book upside down to see if anything would come out. And lo and behold, something did in fact flutter to the floor. And it was, remember that old onion skin paper, Carl? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So my For mother, sure. yeah. So my mother had retyped a poem about grief. It was the most tough love poem I had ever read. It was called to someone named Elsie Robinson. And hmm. that was back in 1996. And I just had to find out who Elsie Robinson was. What about her writing so appealed to my mother that it set me on this incredible journey? Yeah. And how did you get Julia interested in it? Uh, well, I really needed um, help. I, for more or less 11 years was gathering the information as I had described uh, to you. And I just couldn't fashion it into a narrative that I was happy with in terms of a proposal. 
I couldn't do it on my own. Julia has this incredible skill set that I needed. And um, I asked her, uh, I presented the idea of being collaborators on this project. And she had this incredible track record of being this incredible writer in the style that I was fantasizing about creating. And uh, just the partnership was extraordinary. And I am so, so lucky um, to be co-authors with her. And I wish she was on this line. Well, yes, I'm not sure whether she's having some kind of technical problems or, or uh, what it might be. I sent you and her the link at the same time. So uh, let's hope she joins us at some point. Occasionally, people have problems with their browsers. Oh, here she is, Julia. Oh, good. Ah, Hi. good. I am so sorry. I thought you we were talking about two o'clock California time. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that, that's all right. Yes, and you're telling our listeners now where you are. You're in California, and I'm on the East Coast in Cape May County, New Jersey. Um, okay. Allison was just beginning to talk about how she got you interested in the project, uh, in the book. And why don't you tell us a little bit, well, a little bit about yourself, uh, and then your involvement in the project. And then, of course, we have to talk about this remarkable woman, Elsie Robinson. Yes. Well, first of all, again, my apologies for the time mix-up. Um, yes. And I also, I also want to say I am a huge fan of your podcast. Oh, that's a good way to begin. <laughs> I am. I, no, honestly, Carl... Yours was the one podcast I listened to when I was writing this book. Ah. I would I would go on these daily walks up Albany Hill, this hill behind my house. I would listen to it as a writing break and just come back so inspired and email Allison about it. And so it's thrilling to be here. Great. Wonderful. And I can actually tell you, Carl, that is true. That is all completely <laughs> true. Yes. Well, that, that's wonderful to hear for sure. Yeah, I, I know I shot you like a fan mail, like really quickly after I discovered you, because I think yours is the only podcast that is centered on biography that I know of. Well, the best, for sure. yeah, there, there, <laughs> there are others. Uh, there's a new books and biography, um, but they're not the same, I have to say, uh, to toot my own horn. Uh, they're, they're not as concerned with how the books get done. Uh, and they're not done, and the podcasts are not by professional biographers. Bio also, I should say. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the only one doing this. Um, but yes, uh, I'll certainly accept your characterization of the book. <laughs> so okay. so what was it about Allison and Elsie Robinson that decided that you decided to sign on to this? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So you know, I've, I've written two books. One was a memoir that was very sad um, about my relationship with my brother um, who died. And the second was about the Jonestown tragedy. So readers would tell me that my first book made them cry. My second book gave them nightmares. I'm hoping <laughs> that I am hoping that this book inspires them. So when Allison approached me, you know, to help her write the book, I, I was truly inspired once I started reading about Elsie Robinson and just felt like it came at a good time in my life. You know, it was like, you know, it, it was it was a good time. I was, you know, my brother 
hopefully this isn't TMI, but he was, you know, he had stage four cancer. And I'm like, I cannot do another heavy, serious book. Mm. You know, Allison and I were great as a team. Um, as you know, she has those CNN producer chops. Um, I have the narrative skills. So we, we came together and it's like two brains are greater than one. And, um, you know, we took about a maybe a year to pound out a very detailed timeline of what the scope of the book would be and what the chapter would be. And then Allison did this amazing research in archives and interviewing experts and finding all this terrific, you know, hard to find arcane data. And she would send it to me and I would write a chapter a month and then we would go through them and work polishing them. And we were, it was a terrific team. Answer one of my questions because I was going to ask about how the two of you work together. I've done some books together with my wife. And when people have asked me, you know, well, how did you write the book? I say, well, I write one word and then she writes a word. But of course, <laughs> of course that's Funny. not, that's not how it works. You talk, you talk it out. And, and obviously someone's got to put the pen to paper or go to the right. keyboard. Well, thank yeah. goodness for Google Docs is all I can say, because Julia is in California and I'm in New York. And I think uh, that even, yeah. during, even during COVID, that became an extra challenge. I mean, doing the research during COVID when archives were closed, we yeah. were very fortunate to rely on archivists and librarians who did us a lot of favors. You know, we sure. weren't allowed inside institutions. And so they were doing things virtually for us that were just magical. I should say, too, that, that uh, having reviewed your book and, and read the whole thing, uh, that uh, readers should look at the acknowledgments. Should, should find out how you got this material. That's one of the things in my podcast is about how you do it. How do you get it done? Where do you look? What are the sources? Uh, all that sort of thing is, is really important. Right. Well, I have to say, Allison is really persistent, and she is <laughs> a great emailer and sweet talker. And she would get these people <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic to go into their archives, which were closed to the public to please right. do us a favor. So she was, oh, she was, she was great at that. Yeah. Well, I think to be honest, I mean, I, it was just amazing to have a partner in crime. There were times where uh, things were located on the West coast that of course I wasn't going to, get on a plane each and every time there was something. So even then, uh, Julia would be furiously writing. And in addition, she would go off to, let's say, the Bancroft and look at photographs. And so I think uh, Julia undersells herself. She did a lot of incredible research, too. And um, the book was just a joy to do together. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. So uh, I'm on the elevator and I'm talking to you. And uh, you mentioned Elsie Robinson, and I say, who is Elsie Robinson? <laughs> what do you say? I'll let Ellison take this one. <laughs> All right, how's this, Julia? I have to come up with our best elevator line, but here's what I would say. Elsie Robinson came from absolute nothing without any contacts in journalism or publishing or the business, as we would say, and became the most read woman writer in the country, you know, as a newspaper columnist and the highest paid woman writer in the entire 
William Randolph Hearst Media Empire. Well, that sounds great. Let's do the movie. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, we'll both take that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what was what was what was next? What happened then for you? Oh, well, I would say, Julia, take over the Hornitos story, because that's really if you talk about a movie, Carl, this is where it would just fly. You know, she had such a dramatic life, but the Hornitos story stands out. Um, You know, you've read the book, so, you know, the origins of her desire to become a, a writer and how it was born of this tremendous like sadness, her marriage was falling apart, her son was sick. Uh, she talks about, you know, she turned to writing to save her life. She needed this creative outlet. So she started illustrating and writing these children's stories, which were terrific and were first sold in this kid's uh, subscription-based newsletter called John Martin's Letters, and which was a tremendous boon to her self-confidence. So then, you know, once she started getting published, she started wondering, well, hmm, you know, maybe I can make it on my own. I could have enough financial security to leave this unhappy marriage. So she came out to California, like fully assuming that she'd find editorial work out here. That didn't happen. She fell on her face, you know, through a lot of hardships and ended up in Hornitos, the gold mining town, and working in a gold mine, you know, it was kind of the lowest point in her life. The only job she could find was a common mucker in a gold mine, the only woman on a crew of men, um, which sounds too good to be true, but we, yeah, found, yeah. we found evidence. Allison found evidence. I mean, we, we tracked down which mine. That's and- the, that was the really, I thought that was really impressive that, you know, it's one thing to say she worked in a mine, but then to actually find the mine. Yeah. Well, that's part of the fun, right, Julia? I mean, I feel like as biographers, and I think your listeners, Carl, would probably love this intel. Elsie Robinson mentioned in her 1934 memoir that she worked in a gold mine, but she never named which Mm -hmm. one. And Julie and I were convinced that if we knew the name of the mine, of course, then we can go find information about that particular mine. You know, how deep were the shafts? How much production in gold uh, did it log? Did it register? How many people worked there? When did it open? When did it close? I mean, these were all the questions that I'm sure every writer would have, but they would be invisible to us if we didn't know the name of the mine. And so we talked about calling in favors so um, I found these incredible geologists in the state of California who were willing. I couldn't believe it. They were willing for Julia and me to send them every single clue we could amass, meaning how deep were the shafts? What kind of rock did Elsie Robinson describe being there? What kind of trees? What kind of weather? <laughs> We knew the years. We knew she was there between 1915 and 1918. And with the state of California's help in this geology office, we then found out there was only one mine where she could have worked, and it was called the Ruth Pierce Mine. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, we, we, we spent a very long time trying to figure out which mine it was, didn't we, Allison? Like days and days of trying to track it down. <laughs> I mean, so. it was it was incredible. The hunt, I mean, the hunt was extraordinary. And then the payoff was even better because there were very yeah. few times that Julie and I have actually seen each other in person ever. And literally, because we said that the book was written, you know, via Google Docs, you know, yeah. and the one research trip we did together was to go to these gold mines to find the actual land that Elsie walked. And we were able to reach out and talk to and visit with the current owner of that property and walk the land that Elsie Robinson walked. It was just extraordinary. That's marvelous. Uh, you know, I think that finding that mine, what else can you call it except biographer's gold? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's very That's good. Well, you, yeah. you know, as you'll appreciate this as a narrative nonfiction writer yourself. I mean, in narrative nonfiction, you are limited by, by truth, you know, and so these small details mean everything. Yeah. Getting the details, how deep was the mine? What was his output? You know, how how dangerous, how many fatalities? All of this was great and so necessary to bring her story to life. The other thing that uh, what you, you've been talking about, uh, the people who helped you uh, and all the questions you had and the things that they did mm -hmm. work for you, I think successful, uh, many successful biographers um, what they learn, whether they realize it when they're doing the biography or not, is they're engaging collaborators. And mm -hmm. often you can get people excited by the questions you ask them because nobody asked them those questions before. And suddenly they've become important to the story. It actually became a training exercise for some of the geologists in that office. The I can believe it. The yeah. supervisor who gave the green light to have this be a research project internally um, used it as a way for his own staff to understand and explore its own archives. And so that to me was an unexpected lift, right? To know that right. a research project had some practical use for this one particular office. I, it was kind it was just a joy. To work on it with them and I would say Julia we haven't mentioned the incredible find that we discovered oh. in Ornitos and that was the biggest payoff of all I wonder if Julia can explain oh what, we, what we found yes yes uh so we talk about in Hornitos um you know this woman had incredible drive I I have like I don't know maybe a hundredth of the drive that she has it, it's just this incredible drive to succeed, to become what she wants to become, which is a writer, right? So she would work all day in the mines. She had to, to walk, what was it? How many miles was it, Allison? It was four, yeah, it was crazy. Four miles there and then four, four miles back. Right, which, you know, we thought about walking it when we were visiting Hornitos, but it was way too hot. So <laughs> we, drove. <laughs> we drove, but walking. So you used your imagination. Yeah, well, we drove slowly and imagined <laughs> walking in our air-conditioned uh, car. But um, she walked four miles to this mine, worked all day in the heat and underground and this dangerous conditions, walked four miles home at night, fed, you know, made supper for her son, helped him with his homework, and then would turn to trying to hone these stories, to write these stories. 
And she quickly realized that she couldn't write them longhand like she had previously for the children's publications that, that uh, magazine editors expected typed and neat copies. But the problem was she didn't have a typewriter. So she complained to the postmistress, this African-American woman named Luola Rogers, who was, became a very good friend of her. She complained to her that she didn't have a typewriter and she couldn't afford one. So Luola uh, lended her this ancient typewriter. She went into the back of the post office and brought out this ancient typewriter. And this is what Elsie learned to type on and started writing stories on it and getting published in you know, Sunset Magazine and all of these literary magazines like Black Hat. Well, when Allison and I were in Hornitos, we went into that post office, which had been closed for decades. It was full of dust and rodent droppings and cobwebs. And we went into the back part of the post office and we found a Smith Premier ancient typewriter, <laughs> which we believe was the typewriter that she learned to type on and sent out her first successful stories. Yeah, it gives a biographer chills. Can oh my gosh. Add to that story, I just want to yeah. give our research a little bit of grounding because while we had thought that was the typewriter based on the descriptions that Elsie Robinson had offered in her memoir. We did more work, right? We contacted, I would say, a half a dozen of typewriters <laughs> right. who could then mm -hmm. verify the make, the model, the years of production, you know, whether or not that typewriter in particular would have been available to any buyers on the West Coast. So it, it wasn't yeah. just our guessing. We grounded that in, 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 in substantial research. So. Have you ever thought of becoming an FBI agent? <laughs> that's, that's, what they, that's what they did with the, trying to prove, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Whitaker Chambers, um, he, he accused um, this uh, former State Department employee of being a spy. And one of one of the key things in the case was determining exactly which typewriter, and it had to be that typewriter because mm -hmm. it made you know certain marks, et cetera. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. You mentioned. Yeah. I, yeah go ahead. Really quick, another thing about the typewriter. So yes, Allison. Again, this incredible research that she brings to the table. Um, the the thing was ancient when Elsie got her hands on it. She talks about it being old. Okay, so get this. This is before the shift key. It was a dual keyboard. So on the top keyboard were the capital letters and the bottom keyboard were the lowercase letters. You know, we can send you a picture. It's just amazing. Well, yeah. I would say, Julia, even better than us sending a picture to Carl is that when people, of course, when, not if, when people get a copy of Listen World, the first oh. biography of Elsie Robinson, we include photographs of the typewriter in the book. Well, that's that right. Is, that's true. That's the way to do it. Um, you mentioned several times her memoir. Now, biographers sometimes have memoirs to work with, but you do an interesting thing in the book with that memoir. Maybe you should explain. Allison? Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, you know, 
it wasn't lost on Julia and me as we were deciding how to present Elsie Robinson's story that really the best person to tell Elsie Robinson's story wasn't only Julia and me as authors. Of course, we needed to present, we needed to provide context. We needed to vet her version of events. Of course, we needed to do all of that authors. But really, Elsie was a remarkable writer. And so throughout the entire narrative, Julie and I made a decision. Um, I don't think it was quite, I don't think it was early on, but as the kind of manuscript was really being hammered out to include more and more and more of her own voice. And so we we have done the math and she wrote approximately 9,000 newspaper articles columns. Um, she also had this memoir. She also wrote fiction. Uh, she wrote poetry. And so throughout the entire manuscript, we layer a lot of her own voice to help us understand how she was experiencing her own life and the evolving world in real time. And so we trade off voice. So yeah. it becomes a braid almost of our voice and Elsie's. And I would say, if not an equal proportion, certainly um, much more than just taking a quote here and there. Wouldn't you say that, Julia? Yeah, you know, it presented a challenge actually because she has such a, a unique voice. I mean, she, <laughs> you can't compete with Elsie as her biographer, you kind of have to take the back seat. And there were these passages where she described her lived experience and like, you just had to say, you know what? We are, we're just gonna let her have the page, you know? Well, it, it, that's interesting because um, biographers often quote uh, their, their subjects and sometimes they quote a lot and they'll mm -hmm. say, uh, if it's Elsie Robinson, Elsie said, or Elsie reflected or Elsie remembered. You don't do any of that. You you put those passages in italics. Yeah. And from that that works. Um, it it intensifies the book without I don't think taking away from you know the job you've done your narrative. It reminds me a lot of italics in Faulkner, because mm. there's a lot of talking in Faulkner. And there's a lot of speculating in a novel like Absalom, Absalom, about what happened, this happened, that happened. Uh, and then he has sometimes, he gives the characters indirect in speech in italics. And it's the same kind of technique. And it's, it's sort of, um, I don't know how to put this. There's this wonderful balance uh, between one kind of voice and another kind of voice without, in, in my estimation, and I wanted to say more about this in the review, but the New York Sun only gives me 700 <laughs> words. That's why I have this podcast. It, you know, in a book-length work, um, you're not afraid of that. You're not afraid of your subject's power in terms of her speech. Uh, you, 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 know, you render that quite well. Uh, so I think that technique worked, worked quite well. And I think some of the biographers uh, listening to this podcast might think about that, might look at your book and think about that as a way to handle what your subjects say and what you say. You know, th th thanks for that. I mean, we talked about it and at first we were going with traditional, you know, quoting her, she said, right. it's just, it, it, 
it got to be too stilted, you know, because we were using her voice so much yeah. that we just thought italics was a, were a great way to indicate to the reader in a very fluid way who was talking, you know, whether it was Elsie, whether it was us. So it worked. I, I'm, so I'm glad you, I, I'm glad you concur. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it was, it was a smart move. Um, there's a, something else about Elsie as a columnist. There are lots of, there've been a lot of popular columnists, syndicated columnists, all kinds of columnists have, has, have there, has there ever been, uh, a, I can't think of one, a columnist who had, as she did, Elsie clubs. Hmm. That's a very uh, interesting question. I don't know if I know um, if there were columnists who, you know, channeled that kind of enthusiasm. But I would say what I can say, and I'm sure Julia would agree, what made Elsie um, so incredibly uh, smart and savvy and um, just full of moxie is that she was very careful to cultivate her brand. And so these were decisions that were born of her um, ambition. And so she created um, the Aunt Elsie magazine going back to her Oakland Tribune days and that begot for children, these Aunt Elsie clubs, it became a brand. That brand endured. She died in 1956. And the Oakland Tribune kept that brand going, the Aunt Elsie brand, until 1970. And then when she was writing her Listen World column, that's where our book title comes from, she had a section of the Listen World column where once a week she would turn her page over to young Americans to debate um, with older Americans the urgent issues of the day. And so she cultivated this following amongst the younger young adult readers, the young professional kids who are still in college. And that was very smart, right? She was oh, yeah. to make sure that William Randolph Hearst understood her reach, her power, and all the eyeballs that she was bringing into the Hearst media empire. The thing that she did, and I think this might be part of why there were these clubs, um, she gave people a voice. Mm-hmm. She gave people ways of sort of organizing their lives. Um, so an interesting thing that she did with the Aunt Elsie's Club, and remarkably, Allison was able to track down some of the her readers who were kids back in the day, now in their 80s and 90s, who still mm. recall with fondness. Uh, having been published in her column. So she would actually choose pieces of writing, like little stories that kids would send in to publish in her column. And several of those people, those former kids, went on to become writers themselves, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And Allison tracked down uh, quite a few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to... I don't, I don't want to skirt over the part of Elsie Robinson's story that I find to be so exceptional. I talked a little bit about her ambition and how she strategized these clubs to make sure that she had this like incredible following. But that was really, it was all a part of her um, smart career 
planning to constantly put in front of William Randolph Hearst, the world's most powerful publisher, to constantly showcase to him with proof of her incredible following, that he needed her, that he needed to pay her, he needed to value her, and that she had a seat at the table. Uh, so she had ambition, but she also had the fortitude to prove her value directly to Hearst. And I would say, too, the last thing I'll add is that some of the letters that we found directly between Elsie Robinson and William Randolph Hearst have never been published before. So I think we really uh, found a lot of... Um, incredible material. I am incredibly proud that we were able to present them in our book and in her own voice. Does Elsie appear at all in Hearst biographies? Oh, I can answer that. The answer is no. Wow, and that's interesting too. To many, mm -hmm. many Hearst biographers uh, to put Elsie in context. And these papers, some of them that I was just describing are in the William Randolph Hearst archive in his papers at Bancroft. And so we all know how many biographies there have been. And yet the Elsie Robinson name was not known. This is the first biography ever done on her. And so when those other biographers were in those chairs, looking through those you know, boxes, that was yeah. a name that was wholly unfamiliar that they just kind of passed over. Yeah, that happens a lot. Uh, I found I found that in my own research uh, with my Faulkner biography. There was a there was a lawyer that Faulkner knew very early when he accompanied a friend to to New Haven to Yale in 1918, who became a lifelong friend. Look at all the Faulkner biographies. That person's not even in there, and yet they corresponded. They had letters. At one point, there was Faulkner was going to get divorced. This, this lawyer handled it. Um, mm. I found his letters at the New York Public Library, um, and there are a dozen Faulkner biographies. No one, no one even mentions this person. Um, it's really interesting when you become interested in the subject. I guess what I'm saying, and it could be someone as well known as William Faulkner or Marilyn Monroe, for that matter. There are people that just for one reason or another mm -hmm. the nature of the biographies or the persons or the the time uh, in which uh, these books were written uh, these people get overlooked so that's that's really one of the great things about uh, you know good biographies is they they break new ground right. uh, they provide new knowledge i agree yes and it's such a pleasure to go into an archive and like see a letter for the first time, a letter that's been in this dark box in a basement and like have, you know how it is, right? Where you're just like, yeah. the, the trenches with your gloves on and everything is just so <laughs> full. And then you're like handling this very passionate, emotional letter. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah, there, there's no, it's, it's such a pleasure. Yeah, and it gets addictive. I would say one thing, too, for the listeners who are really interested in the process, you know, I think Julie and I found it really hard to find um, these kind of documents early on about Elsie Robinson. There is no Elsie Robinson archive. And so what we're just talking about now, Carl, is that Elsie Robinson's life had to be excavated 
from the men who employed her. So uh, yeah. in the William Randolph Hearst files at the Bancroft, hidden in the Arthur Brisbane archives at Syracuse University, and I can go on, um, that is where so much of correspondence and so much great information existed. But of course, you know, not noticed, under recognized. And so it just took us to come along and find those documents to be of value. It's um, uh, these books, these biographies of women, not just your book, but some of the other um, biographers I've spoken with who've written about women. Um, it's not just that there are these biographies now of women. Uh, it's about more than that. It's about the fact that there's this whole uh, side aspect, part of history that has just until now gotten neglected. Right. Uh, I don't know if I'm quite articulating what I'm saying here is our sense of history has been warped mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the very reasons you just explained. And uh, I'm reading a book now about the, uh, the wives, the widows, the polar explorers, uh, who also don't have archives, and has you know made the biographer look you know in ways at, at these subjects that um, it hasn't been done before. Right. You know, another issue is the fact that when she died, Elsie you know did not hand her papers or before she died rather she did not hand her papers or plan for her papers to be sent to an archive or collected right so we were looking in other people's like first archive to try and find and put together these pieces of her life yes you know that that was an issue um I think another interesting thing that you just referred to and I was told when we were shopping this book around you know, we were, I was told uh, by somebody that women do not read biographies and which I found astounding, yeah. but I, but I think that could be because most biographies are written about men who have yeah. always been permitted to live these large lives, dramatic Bi lives. Yes, biographies yeah. by men and for men. So when you look at, I'm, I'm uh, working on a proposal for a book about presidential biography. Most of those books are written by men. And one right. of the reasons, for instance, Thomas Jefferson, the whole business with Sally Hemings, so late in the history of biographies of um, Thomas Jefferson is in part, uh, put racism aside, in part because those books were written by men with a certain worldview that someone who comes along who is a woman, who's African-American, mm. obviously has other interests and other things to look at. They chose to ignore that story. Yeah. It, didn't, yeah. it didn't seem to matter to them. Wow. Well, that's... Yeah, and it's, so, and it's I, oral history, too. You know, partly they discount it because it's oral history, but there are ways of, of using oral history, too, as biographers know. Yeah, I was just going to add that there was some other data that we uncovered as to why we thought maybe Elsie Robinson has been forgotten and why Listen World it has been such a joy to um, publish. 
And the National Women's History Museum did some deep reporting. And what they found was that in American public schools, the way history and social studies is taught is what some experts call, quote unquote, doggedly masculine. It's through the <laughs> of land acquisition, through military maneuvers, war yes. and generally areas where men have had a place and have excelled. And what they found was that 24% of all historical figures taught in U.S. public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, only 24% are women. Wow. Oh, yeah. So we have work to do. There's also a bias within, uh, because I, this is fresh in my mind since I'm working on this presidential biography project, it's true that the way that greatness is measured has to do with the president's office. Did he have a war to fight? Was there a depression? In other mm -hmm. words, those kinds of things, the responses to it are the way greatness is defined. I'm also going mm -hmm. to be reviewing mm -hmm. soon a biography of Grover Cleveland. Most people don't know much about Grover Cleveland, uh, although he was president for two non-consecutive terms. And the biographer is making the argument about that, about what constitutes greatness. And one, one of the things he says about Grover Cleveland's greatness is his character, his probity, that he mm -hmm. came to America at a time when the two parties were quite corrupt and he was incorruptible. Mm -hmm. And that that should stand for a great deal. He didn't have the opportunity to fight a war. In fact, one of the great things about Glover, Grover Cleveland is that he opposed the annexation of Hawaii because he said, that's a dirty deal. You know, there mm. were Americans on the ground there who, who displaced a monarchy. Um, we're getting off the subject here in a sense, but I think what biographies like yours do is they, 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 they bring at least some kind of balance Right uh, to to the way biography has been presented to the public. I agree. I think historically, you know, as you say, a man's greatness has been measured in in money or power. You know, things that have traditionally been excluded from women. You know, women yeah. have traditionally these quiet, smaller lives. You know, they were oppressed for, yeah. for many many, 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 many generations. And Elsie dared, as she writes, to live as a man, to claim all masculine rights and then some, she says, <laughs> which I love. You know, she goes to Hornitos and she's working like a man, living among men. She has a lover and she's writing about it all. This is all fodder for her fiction and short stories, you know, which I love, you know, in yeah. 1950, <laughs> right? And by the way, had America's attention. This was not someone who just wrote for herself. She had more than 20 million readers. And just to put that into perspective, that's double the number of current mm -hmm. subscribers to the New York Times. And when she named her column, listen, comma, world exclamation point, which is a <laughs> borrowed the name of the book, there were men, readers, mm -hmm. who wrote her saying, how dare you tell me to live in whatever way that you feel is right. They took issue with a woman yeah. platform. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She had to she had to confront a lot of that. Is there is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? Mm. Something you wanted to say that I I didn't bring out? 
I would just say that we have a lot of um, events coming up. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, These are all over the country. And I think that if you uh, want to come and, you know, meet Julia and me today, we're going to be, I know this is not going to be aired for a while, but we're doing events in California. We're doing events in New York and Washington, D.C. Going to be aired today. Yes. Yes. And even, of course, yeah, well. online. So please uh, be a part of the conversation. We would love to talk with you about Listen World. Okay, that's good. Allison, there's a central website where people can find all of the events. What is that website? We have one website, uh, lcrobinson.com, which has this really fun short. It won't be very long. I promise you can absorb it all in less than five minutes at the timeline of Elsie Robinson's life. And on my website, to events and it has all the events that Julie and I are doing across the country online and in person. So it'd be fun uh, to meet some of your listeners, Carl. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, so movie producers, remember that website. <laughs> wow. Well, gosh, it's just so amazing to actually be talking to you. I am such a fan of your podcast. And it's well, so thank you. Well, We'll have to do it again. Are you, are you two planning to do another project together? Nothing's in the works. Not yet, huh? <laughs> well, just wait, wait for the, wait for that call from Hollywood. <laughs> okay. That, would, that may, that may decide it for you. Yes, of course. That would be amazing. It would be okay. amazing. We all I want those as writers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I wouldn't be that surprised. At the very least you'll probably get an option out of this, even if they don't make the movie. Yeah. Yeah, options are what are called writer's annuity income. <laughs> well, you have yeah. made me smile ear to ear. So if that is going yeah. to happen, that would just be the icing on the cake. We really, at the at the core, I think Julia would likely agree that the book is really meant to restore Elsie um, Robinson's name, restore Elsie Robinson's legacy. Too many women have erased from history. And if, from your mouth, Carl, if this also gets optioned, that would mm -hmm. just be more jet fuel to making sure more people can be inspired by Elsie Robinson's life. Yeah. I agree. That's a good way to end. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I really appreciate both of you coming on the podcast. I'm going to post this. Uh, what happens is the podcast gets processed right after we speak and mm -hmm. we stop speaking. Uh, sometimes it takes a few minutes. Sometimes it takes as much of, as an hour. But as soon as that happens, I will send the links to you. Uh, and I'm going to put it on Facebook uh, and uh, Twitter so that the whole world can listen. Great. And we will share those. And I, I just want to apologize again for the time mix up. Oh, no problem. That's that's okay. You kept us in suspense, which is not a bad thing in a podcast. Oh, my God. Oh, I would have been heartbroken if I had missed it, though. I actually have an iCal, like be at the library at 2 p.m. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> thank California you so, time. Carl, so much. What's, oh, thank you. Um, and uh, we'll do this again sometime. That'd be great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, so you, Carl. Thrilling. Sure. Have a great day. Right, take care. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.